Hi again. Welcome to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Lisa Kefoffer, and some of my other titles in life include social worker, former therapist, widow, mother, and founder of Reimagining Grief. I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, and this podcast is one of the paths I'm taking, so I'm so glad you've come along to join me on this journey. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss another episode. And while you're online, make sure you're following us at Reimagining Grief on social media to get the latest behind-the-scenes news on this show and for some inspiring and informative daily invitations. I remember going to the first service and not being able to cry and just feeling just surreal about it. Um, in a second service in Tyler, Texas, where our, you know, both sets of my grandparents lived, but it was, the services happened and then it, nobody talked about him after that. Interesting. It was as though, and it, and it was so confusing for me because the, I think that's part of everybody's grief process I, is where did they go? Yeah, and where, especially where is, as a child, there's so much sort of wonder about what it really means to be gone. Yeah, I remember waking up the day after he died that morning, and I had I was able to sleep, and I went into the living room, and I saw his shoes. In today's episode, I was joined by Chrissy Tegerstrom. She is an Austin-based artist, creative consultant, and podcast host of Beyond and Back. Chrissy bravely explores how her father's death due to addiction when she was just 11 years old, a condition, by the way, her family never discussed, profoundly influenced her life. She reveals how her mother's insistence on not talking about it, virtually removing traces of his existence in their home, and her efforts to move on taught Chrissy some damaging lessons about love, grief, and loss. Chrissy illuminates what her grief work has looked like, a journey she says she has only begun a few years ago, nearly three decades after her father's death. She explores the power of a good question to break open the embodied trauma she had been carrying around since childhood. She reflects honestly and openly about the various paths she has traveled to find healing. She is putting into practice a commitment she made recently on her healing journey to use her voice. Hi, I am Chrissy Tegerstrom. I'm an artist and a creative consultant living in Austin, Texas, and I'm also the host and creator of Beyond and Back podcast. Hi, Chrissy. Thank you so much for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So Chrissy and I, listeners should know, met at a Austin Lady Pods meetup mm-hmm. uh, for fellow female podcasters here in town. And that's how we connected. Um, and when we sort of got to go around the room and share our stories of why we're doing podcasting, something sort of sparked in each other's stories and we connected and here we are. I know you mentioned that you your podcast title and for some reason I just wanted to come over <laughs> and connect over grief of all things. I know. Well, the title definitely I feel like resonates for people a lot um, and also has a way of kind of 
I think, relaxing people's anxiousness mm-hmm. about the topic. Yeah. So I'm glad to know it works. It does. That it's was good... my theory in practice, and now you are proof, evidence. It's a good title. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, like all my guests, showing up with courage and vulnerability to explore this topic that my goal sort of in life is to get us all much more comfortable and practiced at talking about hard things in general, but in particular talking about all the myriad facets of grief and loss because 100% of us are going to experience it one or more times in our life and we too are going to pass. And my feeling is that by ignoring it, we are actually missing out on so much of the beauty and joy of life by avoiding this thing that we fear the most. Mm -hmm. So I'm super grateful that you are open to having this conversation. So I'd love to begin where I begin all of my interviews, and that's asking you to tell me about your earliest memories of grief and loss. What were you witnessing? What did you learn about that experience? And knowing a little bit about your story, unlike maybe my other guests, your first experience of grief and loss was not sort of tangential to your life like a neighbor's mom or a something like that, that it's a very personal grief and loss story. So wherever you want to start. Yeah, I mean, my first experience with loss was losing, my father died when I was 11 years old. But I think my first experience with grief came so much later. Interesting. I, it was, um, my father had been sick. He had battled addiction to prescription drugs. He had been an alcoholic earlier in his life, and I think later he just switched to prescription drugs. And it was, um, you know, we hear about opiate addiction now. Pervasive but, now, but yeah. this was in what years? This was years? a couple decades ago. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was like, well, the doctor prescribed the medicine, so you've got to take it. You know, it was just not talked about. And even for me to use the word addiction, it was never talked about in my family. I no. mean, not even once, not even intimated or it was just unthinkable. And, and I was so young, you know, I, when you're like that you young, don't know any different. No, you just think, I mean, may, there was a deep part of me that thought none of this is normal, but your conscious that maybe that's the subconscious self, but your yeah. conscious self just takes it for granted. This is what I know. Yeah. So, um, when he died, nobody. We just continued this family practice of nobody talking about anything. And so that's what you mean by there really wasn't grief because there was no acknowledgement of of the loss. Nothing. I mean, not even. I think about it. I think back about it, and it blows my mind. Like not even one person, not even one adult came to me as a, an eleven year old and said, "This is hard. Do you want to talk about it?" I I went back to school. I didn't know what I was supposed to say to the other kids. I just, nothing, no, yeah. no preparation, no support. So I think in retrospect, I just shut down. Yeah. I, I didn't shut down as, I continued to function, but a part of me shut down. Well, it sounds like what you were being modeled around you, and of course when we're young, but even now as adults, we are constantly influenced about by how people model culture and family and friends. But as a child, we're especially impressionable. And it sounds like at that time, there were no adults in your life, your mother or other family or friends, who were modeling any expressions of grief, not just about the dialoguing of grief, which many families aren't good at doing. But mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like, was there expressions of 
anger, sadness, shame? Like, were there any outward expressions? There was presumably a a service. There was a ser- there were two services. I remember going to the first service and not being able to cry and just feeling just surreal about it. Um, in a second service in Tyler, Texas, where our you know both sets of my grandparents lived, but it was. The services happened, and then it, nobody talked about him after that. Interesting. It was as though, and it and it was so confusing for me because the, I think that's part of everybody's grief process. I, is where did they go? Yeah, and where, especially where is, as a child, there's so much sort of wonder about what it really means to be gone. Yeah, I remember waking up the day after he died that morning, and I had. I was able to sleep, and I went into the living room, and I saw his shoes. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, where did he go? But no, nobody uttering his name, no pictures. It was as though he just never existed. Did you see a sort of um, proactive effort on your mom's part or others to sort of disappear him from the sort of landscape of your lives in terms of, I mean, you just described stumbling sort of upon his shoes, but... There was sort of an active active removal, it sounds like, of evidence of his life. Removal, move on, don't talk about it. I mean, it's – you can – in order to try to mature as an adult, you have to see your parents as fallible humans. So, you know, my mother, I guess, wasn't prepared. She didn't know what to do. But I think she just went into survival mode and moved on and didn't think about my brother and I, really – and they weren't – my parents weren't necessarily – they weren't happily married before, so – There was some complexity for her around this loss as well, obviously. Yeah, and, and it's – I've looked back on it, and I can try to have some sort of understanding. Well, not – no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have understanding. I can have sympathy, and I can say, you know – you can maybe have an intellectual understanding of some of the challenges, the decisions yeah, that she, she made. Yeah, she obviously had challenges, but I can't really empathize and say that I would have handled it the same way, but it's not my life. Yeah, so yeah. there's there's definitely forgiveness there, like, well, that's what you chose to do. It's not maybe what I would have hoped for or done in my if, – if it were me, but that acceptance is there. It's like, okay, well, that's what happened. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just this – I mean, it was really like he'd never existed. And then, plus, I had no place to put any thoughts or feelings or questions or anything. So you have a a younger, was it a younger or older brother? Older brother. Older brother. He was four years older, and he was closer to my dad, so he, and a boy, so, and in Texas at that time, that, that, you know, there were some genders were treated differently, like the son was treated differently than the daughter in some ways. But, um, yeah, just – and we he and I didn't talk to each so other So that's what I was going to ask you. So the adults in your life, meaning your mom, I don't know if your grandparents lived nearby or anything, but the adults in, in your life were either explicitly or implicitly saying, move on, don't talk about it, don't carry his memory forward, we're not going to have this be a part of our day-to-day life. How was that it? That was be- unspoken. Unspoken, yeah. so pretty you know, implicit, mm-hmm. which it usually is, which is also, by the way, makes it so much more confusing for a child because – not that explicitly saying we're not going to talk about him is good, but implicitly makes often causes people to think, am I crazy for wanting to talk about it or thinking about it? You know, it, we start to – all those stories that float around in our heads start to get louder and louder when 
there's no sort of external rule telling mm-hmm. us how to respond. So the adults in your world were implicitly saying, don't talk about it, move on. We're not going to mourn and grieve or express emotion. I don't know what your relationship was like with your brother before your dad died, but did you guys find ways to connect over his loss, or you guys kept a silent door between you as well? Or Yeah, I mean, we just... Also four years apart and being a little sister. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was en- it's enough of an age difference that you don't have a lot to relate with each other on. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, we just both modeled what we saw, which is don't talk about it. I mean, yeah. we we had maybe an implicit, I think we both had that deep subconscious feeling of this isn't normal. Like this family <laughs> is messed up, but we didn't have the language or the trust to, you know, lean on each other. We didn't have the capacity. So I think we both n- knew that, but just didn't have, we weren't modeled any way of connecting or communicating. No. And it doesn't, and and might I assume then, I don't want to assume, so let me ask, was not just around death and loss, but was that just sort of the way of practice of your family in general, which is we just don't communicate about hard things, it sounds like, difficult things? Oh, I mean, not really about anything in a, in a lot of ways. Like I said, um, in hindsight, he had an addiction problem. I I didn't know that. You know, I just knew that at 10 years old, I knew what Demerol, Percodan, Percocet, Vicodin, Codeine, I knew all those names of the drugs, and I knew my mom had to hide the drugs from him and dole them out. Mm. And it's just those weird things where you have this subconscious question of, well, why does she have to hide the drugs? What would happen? From a grown man. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, just no, no communication. No communication. And then that continued after he died because my mom got a boyfriend who lived um, about an hour away and she would just go Friday night and go to his house and then come back maybe Monday morning. So there, it was just left alone. It was I was just kind of left alone left a lot. Alone. Yeah. Wow. And was there a piece of the not talking about his death and loss, do you think now, maybe as an adult, that was wrapped up in his addiction? Like, was his death a direct result of his addiction? Do you think it was further complicated because of his addictive history? Or was there were just both two difficult subjects that your family wasn't equipped to, to talk about? I mean, it's not like we were doing a good job talking about anything, really. So I think that was all across the board. But I have no doubt, in my mind, looking back, that his addiction to prescription meds did, I think that that was the cause of death. He had had kidney cancer, and he had had back problems but um, and migraines, but he he died when he was 52. I mean, that's 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 young. young. Yeah, yeah. he died of a heart attack, and I think just all those meds in your body, and I think his body just gave out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but but to – I don't even know if talking to some of my family members now, if I, if I would say my dad died of addiction, if they would – that would scandalize them or, or agree with them. You know, it's just it's, – it's an opinion that, that I have. And it, it figures heavily into me not wanting to take prescription meds and just realizing the gravity of that decision you know those the opiates and just the what they can do yeah yeah I think I the reason I asked that question I've been interviewing different guests who've had different kinds of losses that are often tangled in shame either sort of from internal messages of shame or in 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 fact in my most recent episode sort of external um, ex- 
expressions of shame and judgment um, around the termination of a pregnancy and the grief and loss around that as an example. So I ask often because I think grief and the grief journey is already a complicated process to begin with in the most quote-unquote normal of circumstances, let alone when there are issues that are surrounding things that are judged heavily in our in our culture. So you, there you are an 11-year-old. Your dad is dead. Your brother's not talking about it. Your mom's not talking about it. Your mom is maybe in your eyes, quote-unquote, moving on because she has a boyfriend who she's traveling to see. What were you doing to, when you look back now, what were your early coping strategies? What was your What did resiliency look like for you at that time? How do you think that shaped sort of, because 11 is such a formative age. Yeah. I'm, when you look back, how were you navigating that time in your early teens? I think the thing that saved me is that I had, I was I always did really well in school, and it came naturally to me. I feel like I was just, it was a gift. It wasn't that I studied super hard, but even in elementary school, I was a couple grades ahead of my of my peers in math and things like that. It just was a natural thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to get positive attention from adults at school. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, okay. Here's where I can go where there's a little bit of structure and some adults pay attention to me. And I, I think that just saved me, going to school, keeping my grades up, and not, not wanting to lose that. Yeah. That's probably how I coped. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of um, – so much of our life gets turned upside down when there's a loss, especially when there's a loss around addiction again or something that's confusing – um, and our safe sense of safety, in a way, is shattered, right? Um, sort of torn apart. And then safety is already such a precious commodity as when you're young because you're sort of navigating the world assuming that the adults in the world are going to keep you safe. And a loss, in a way, I mean, the death of your dad was already like a disruption to your sense of safety, I imagine. And then your mom's way of handling her grief was also maybe a disruption to your sense of safety because she was not keeping the kind of attention and care to your grief that maybe you needed at the time. So the school maybe was this real safety place for you. Yeah. For sure. And I I mean, immediately I didn't trust the world, you know, if you can't trust mom and dad. And, right. and then it took me a long time to realize that I had that waiting for the other shoe to drop feeling Yeah. because the first shoe did drop. You know, the worst happened. So you're you're on constant high alert. Yeah, there's a hypervigilance, I think, that we, when you have early loss or trauma, and not that those are always interrelated, but that we become hypervigilant for the for the worst, which has a sort of neurobiological sense to it, mm-hmm. you know, right? Like keep us prepared and on alert, mm-hmm. you know, when the saber-toothed tiger might come along and snatch <laughs> yeah. up somebody else. And it can become really disruptive to our nervous system, to our psychology, to our de- to, to our development, especially, again, at that age. Yeah, I, I later in life, again, a lot of my be- trying to become a mature adult has, yeah. has happened later and in hindsight, but um, I realized maybe five or so years ago that I've, I identify as a highly sensitive person, and there was a woman, I think her name is Elaine Aaron, that wrote a book about highly sensitive person. Mm-hmm. You can go online and take a 26-question kind of diagnostic test, and I think I answered yes to 25 out of the 26. Wow. 
But in her book, she correlates high sensitivity to early childhood trauma. Yeah. So I don't know if that, I don't know if you have experience or opinion on that, but um, yeah, it definitely changes. It changes our neurobiology. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert in it. I've certainly witnessed that as a practitioner, as a therapist, working with families and kids. I have my own early, actually young trauma that I've experienced and worked through and explored. And I definitely think it has, has shaped sort of the way in which I you know, have feedback loops with the world and how I sort of walk through the world. And I think there's lots of great strategies and, and tools and resources out there to help people sort of reset that rewiring. So I know recently on an episode I talked with somebody about EMDR, mm-hmm. you know, obviously as one method to do that. Um, but, yeah, I can imagine that you were sort of walking through the world sort of hyperly tuned to things. I mean, I don't know about you, but my heart goes out to my younger self that I was walking through the that walking through the world that way and didn't even know that I mean, maybe had a sense deep down that that wasn't normal, but also knew there was no other way to be. I have a kind of sensitivity to that. But I also wonder and sometimes feel grateful that there are things and skills that I developed that not for that having happened, maybe I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. There are curiosities that I followed, like the practice of holding space and bearing witness for others came out of actually I had a very violent, early traumatic experience, and then I told my story to somebody who didn't hold space for my story. Mm. And so I ended up becoming excruciatingly interested in the practices of holding space and bearing witness, which is sort of how I manifest what I do now in the world and not that I would have that trauma or that betrayal happen again but I often think like there's some beauty in how the discovery that happened that was a long-winded answer or long-winded way of asking you when you look back now even the sort of development of yourself as a as you termed it I think hypersensitive person highly Highly, not hyper (laughs) highly sensitive person are there things that you look back sort of fondly about that young self that like there were ways you were showing up in the world that you developed skills or resources or resiliency that are like, yeah, I like that. I like to remind myself of that part of who I was or am. It's hard to say. I mean, it, it's hard to say who who I was before and after. It was so, it's like so delineated. BC and AD, you know, it's just before and after. It's a different life. And I do wonder sometimes, like, I I guess I'm grateful and I resonate with what you're saying about wanting to hold space or feeling I, – I like having interesting um, exploratory, exploratory conversations, even if emotions come up. And hold, holding space is something that I'm interested in, too. Not to the extent – you know, not in a professional way like you do, but it's something that I do on my podcast and I like it. I like getting into deep conversations, but um, – I don't know. I, I I have memories of being kind of a – I wonder if that experience deepened my empathy. Mm. But I do have – I do remember kind of sticking up for my friends being when I was little. And so maybe some of that was already there. I, right. It's, it's hard, hard to, to tell say. how much of that was the you that you were going to be evolve into before mm-hmm. and then how much was sort of amplified by that experience in your life. I mean, it's, it's interesting as I – continue to try to become a mature adult. I love this expression. I'm working on it too. I'm 48. It's a lifelong I'm, process. Yeah, exactly. But um, I jokingly say that when I got, I couldn't wait to get out of my house. I, I can be honest about that. Yeah. And I was so fortunate because I had 
loved school so much and it came so naturally to me, I got a full scholarship to college here at UT. Okay. Everything paid for. I mean, wow. a miracle. And, but I was, I, I jokingly say that I was like a, um, a pound puppy let loose in the dog park. Like I did not know how to behave and not in a, not in a, I'm an introvert. I'm very careful, but I would, I would behave in what I thought was normal. And it would, I started to learn, oh, that it is not normal Two two of my, one, when probably when I really realized this was, and it's kind of funny now, but two of my college roommates when we had apartments blew up at me in the same way. And at first, you know, the first time it happens, I think, what's wrong with this roommate? And then the second time it happens in the exact same way, I think, oh, it's me. There's a common denominator and here. Yeah. What I would do is I would come in the front door and they would be sitting in the kitchen or the living room and I would walk right past them and just go to my room. And I wouldn't look at them or speak to them. And now I understand why that made someone irate. But that's how my house was. Yeah. You didn't know any different. No. My, you know, my mother would be home or I would be home and she wouldn't speak to me. And it was just this. That's just how I, people I operated in the world. Yeah. 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 But so I, I guess I, that gives me empathy for people who act up in ways that you think, oh, how could they do this? And. I do have that little, I try to remember yeah. to have that empathy of, you know what, you don't know where they came from. You are listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. I'm excited to tell you about our next episode coming out later this month with director Ryan Bowman and producer Michael Jenke. These two filmmakers out of Calgary Join me to discuss their powerful and beautiful documentary short film, We the Bereaved, A Meditation on Grief. They opened up about their apprehension to take on this awesome responsibility of telling these deeply personal and painful stories, about the lessons they learned about their own grief beliefs along the way, and how this experience is shaping how they are considering their next projects. You can find the link to their beautiful film, We the Bereaved, on my website by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash inspirations. So tell me a little bit about how that manifested, sort of you kind of launched into the world, you know, at UT here in Austin um, and started to presumably interact with people who hadn't known your family. So like high school was one thing because those people presumably knew maybe about your dad's death and knew your mom in some former fashion. So you were sort of surrounded by a community of people who sort of knew your story. But here you show up at campus, even, you know, exposed to lots of different kids who come from lots of different backgrounds and ways of being. And you have to sort of learn yourself all over again in the world and also, by the way, decide whether how what you share about yourself, including the fact that you have a father who is dead. Mm-hmm. How did you negotiate those early getting to know people and, and how did you think of framing your story, including your lost story or not, in those early years? It, it's, it's really hard to even remember that. 
I think my survival mechanism was just self-preservation and self-protection. So just constantly protecting myself, mm-hmm. not knowing how to talk about things. Um, eventually, over the years, eventually I got, I would read books. I was always interested in help, self-help. And I was, as much as I felt shame for, I don't know how to be and I don't know how to act and I don't know how to re- have relationships right, I wanted to. So I would read books. and So I, your curiosity was a real driver. Yes, yeah. but not necessarily, but not having the language or the resilience or the confidence or the self-worth to talk about it and ask for help and talk to other people about it. It was more like, okay, I'm going to protect myself and secretly try to learn (laughs) so I can do better. And um, for a long time, I couldn't really talk about my dad without crying, you know, and and I, so I didn't want to talk about it because I I would get upset to the point where I couldn't have self-control over it. Okay. And, so and because crying to you felt like a weakness, felt like off-putting, what, what do you think was sort of in the background of that message that you couldn't talk to the point of crying with people? Um, well, I couldn't do that in my family. Right. So yeah. why would some innocent friend who was just trying to hang out? <laughs> like, just trying to go to a party. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, it's yeah. some peer. If, if I think that people could, I don't remember trying it that much, but yeah. if, but. When you get upset to a point where people don't know how to handle it. Because people don't know how to hold space for our pain. Yeah. And you're triggered in some completely unhealed wound. So it was, I don't, I just knew not to put that on somebody else. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, definitely didn't find any, um, any opportunities of people who would hold space. And, And, you know, you can't, I feel like you can't expect other people to do that. No. If, um at least not people you're paying, you know, it's not something I expected in a social um, realm. But that was a big part of myself that I couldn't share that that contributed to the hiding and self-protecting and not trusting. Yeah, because there was this big piece of who you are, who you were, that you weren't able to present to the world and maybe even not present to yourself. Definitely. Yeah. So what do you think I mean, you're here on this podcast having this conversation about grief and and your journey to even start to name and claim grief mm-hmm. as a part of your life. So when you look back, what, what, what was your earliest foray into sort of naming it and claiming it and exploring what what is this thing, grief, and how do I do it in my life? You know, we are told there's what is it, five stages of kind grief. Of. You know, <laughs> we, we're aware of this, and I remember thinking – okay, I had a big loss. I've, I need to grieve this. Have I gone through the stages? You know, I don't know. (laughs) And over the years, I would work on being able to talk about him or talk even, I would never talk about him because nobody ever talked about him, but just mentioning what happened without crying. So I felt like over the years and practicing, when I got to the point of being able to mention oh, my dad's dead. He died when I was 11. Without crying or getting upset, I thought, okay. Stage one done or yeah, something. You no, know? I, yeah. no, I really thought, and I had I had gone to some therapy. I had read self-help books, and I thought, you know, I'm never, never to the point of thinking, I, I'll never think, oh, this is handled. But I thought, okay, I, I think I've done my work. I don't see anything else. Like nothing else is cropping up right now. Okay. Yeah. It's been a long time. Decades have passed. You know, I'm, a, I'm creating my life, and that was a long time ago. 
the, the, the things that have happened, I, I have seen in hindsight, it was a process. And I can pinpoint to a couple of different things. And I didn't know at the time, but I don't think I started grieving until the last five years. I mean, maybe the last three years. And he's been dead for three decades. I, so I thought, because I could talk about it without crying. I didn't have much to say about it because he died when I was so young. I thought, I've, I've done this. And again, I was open. I'm a seeker. I, I read self-help books all the time. I, so it wasn't I, like you were avoiding it, no. but you really felt like, oh, okay. Intellectually, I thought, I'm good. I'm pretty good. And I would get upset around the anniversary of his death sometimes. But I thought, well, that was a long time ago. And the first, the first time that I had an, a clue about embodiment, this, this concept of if you can't process an emotion, if you don't have the voice or the power or the maturity to process an intense emotion, it gets stuck in your body. The first time I, I got a clue to that was about 10 years ago. I was at the Omega Institute volunteering, and I volunteered in the – it's like a work-study kind of program. And – I was working in the wellness clinic, and I was able to see a few of the practitioners as part of my work exchange. Oh, not cool. Not work study, but work exchange. And my whole life, I have had scoliosis, and it's had the right side of my back has a ton of tension, and the left side is kind of atrophied, and I, it's something I've had to manage. And I, and I knew it. I had seen an x-ray of it, and the, my spine is torqued kind of around the upper middle of my back. I was aware of this, so I thought, so there was, there was a visiting chiro- chiropractor. I, I don't remember his name. I, I need to find out. But I went to see him, and he was doing the intake, and he said, well, what, what's brought you here? What do you want to talk about? I told him about my scoliosis, and he said, well, what's the first memory you have of having scoliosis? I said, oh, I've had it my whole life, you know. Yeah. For as far back as I can remember, kind of blowing off that question. And he said, no, I really want you to think. Think about, like, the first memory you have of having it. How old were you? I said, I was probably around 11. And he said, what happened to you when you were 11? I was going to try not to cry. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. But that that one question just shifted something in my brain. It was like I told him my dad died when I was 11. And then I thought, I mean, I've thought about it later. And where my spine is torqued and twisted is right around my heart center. And I believe that I, I actually experientially know that trauma can change your physical body. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not even, no one laid a hand on me, you know? Yeah. But it's that, if you think about the, I had this trauma and then I had nowhere to put it. And your body held on to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I want us to pause for a moment to reflect on that experience Chrissy shared with us. 
Her story was a powerful reminder about the power of a good question. Transformation and true revelation can happen when someone is acutely curious and asking a question, not out of a perceived answer or trying to lead us in a direction, but just asking a truthful question. Her experience reminds me of what Parker Palmer, a nationally renowned writer, speaker, activist, says about the power of certain types of questions. In a safe and trusted space, with no expectations of the answer or outcome, a quiet and pure question allows the quiet, shy soul to show up, creating a space in which we are freed to hear our own truth. Yes, and his his holding space and his wisdom for doing that. And I I remember after having that adjustment, we didn't talk about it a lot and I don't I don't even remember crying necessarily, but it it shifted my awareness in a big way. And when I finished that adjustment, I had energy running out of my fingertips and I felt more present in my body. Like it was like you like like I was a garden hose and he straightened me out for a minute and I felt different in my body. It was just a moment of kind of feeling like I was in my body. Like maybe I wasn't totally in my body for many, many years. And um, it was this felt sense of presence and embodiment that gave me a goal to get back to. to Like there was a feeling of like, oh, I want more of that. I want to explore what, what that looks like. What's interesting as I reflect on what you just shared about how you sort of survived and navigated your young life, which was you were very much cerebral in your intellectual mind as a student and a studier. Mm -hmm. And this one moment um, in the chiropractor's office at the Omega Institute, all those years later of asking you that beautiful question allowed you to maybe ground back down into your body for maybe the first time in decades. I think so. I mean... I think when you have trauma, a lot of times, I mean, you would know this, but people can leave their body if they can't handle it. I mean, disassociate. We And we do this again for, like many of our responses, for good reason, mm-hmm. you know, self-protection. You just, you can't handle it. It just becomes problematic when we don't know how to reintegrate again. Yes. And there was, I had no, I had nothing to compare it to. And, and we don't talk about embodiment. And I'm a seeker and I'm a sensitive person and I feel things. I get a lot of information through what I feel. Yeah. And not a, in an emotional sense, but, um, you know. Energy. <laughs> energy. I mean, yeah, yeah. And vibes and good vibes and bad vibes. I mean, now there's some language around it in popular culture. But um, I have been able to tap into that more as I can get drop down more into my body yeah and um so as I did some so that was that first moment of recognizing oh there's something to this embodiment there's something to this being present in my body to explore my trauma my grief that was sort of your first moment how did that shape the trajectory of what came next 
Well, I, I think I started grieving just a few years ago, but something happened um, before that. I see it as a, as a long process yes, now. Yes, yes. But I, I've always done dream work, and actually the, like a, the whole reason I went to the Omega Institute is because I was writing down my dreams at this period of time in my life, and I woke up one morning. I had never heard of the Omega Institute. I was living in San Francisco, and I woke up with, Sometimes I'll dream words, and I'll write them down, or, or whatever I dream I write down, generally. And I dreamt the words in all caps, Omega Institute. And I thought, ooh. That, that sounds seems, an interesting... Yeah, hmm. and I wrote it down in my little red dream diary, and I went on with my life. And a few months later, I was online somewhere. I, I can't believe I didn't Google it. I mean, now right. I would just Google now, it. Right, yeah. But yeah. I just thought, it's a dream. It's, these are two big words, whatever. What does that mean? And then later, on, later I was online and I saw, oh, this is a real place. So I ended up going there because I had dreamt about it. So a couple of years ago, I was trying to remember when this happened. I was in Joshua Tree on a vacation and I was, I, I have a, a good connection to that place. I, I feel really good there. And I was asleep and my partner was next to me asleep. And I woke up in the middle of the night and sat straight up in bed and went, and just like, like I breathed in strongly and audibly and sat straight up. And that has never happened to me before. And I have no image related to it. I wasn't having a dream that it was scaring me or anything. Right. But I had a, a palpable sensation and a bit of a vision that a black cap was taken off of my heart. Like a, it was like a little piece of coal. And it was just plucked off of my heart center. And I know that sounds oh so wild. It sounds magical. Yeah. And so I thought, this is big. This is something. But, again, did not immediately know. Like, how do you put words to that or make meaning of that? Yeah. But you knew. You, you instinctively knew there's something. I didn't know it was coming. Yeah. And I didn't know the cap was there. Yeah. But it's, But in hindsight, of course the black cap was on my heart. You know, I had been protecting my heart my whole life because it was not safe to go in there. And I, I've since, I had a a healer that I worked with for a a number of years back and she studied in the Barbara Brennan school of healing. And Barbara Brennan is, she started out as a scientist in the 1940s. I think she even might've worked for NASA, but she is a pioneer in energy healing. Okay. And because I sense a lot of the world through ener- energetics, it's not anything I've really studied or practiced. It's just kind of how I relate to the world. Yeah. I was curious, and I read her book, and she has a very interesting, and what I have felt as my feelings have reinforced her theory about stuck energy and trauma, is when you when something happens to you and you don't have the language or you can't let the emotion come out or you move don't have the you. power to let it move through you, it gets stuck like a little sphere of tender, unresolved, childlike pain. And then we form a hard crust. A callus. A callus around it to protect it. And she calls that hard pain. So when we get triggered, when we have, and I think, I think trigger, the emotional triggers are kind of in the language. I don't yeah, think that's yeah. it. When we get triggered, that's when someone's touching that hard pain. 
And that's, uh, as I understand triggered, which believe me, how many triggers did I, right. <laughs> was yeah. I walking around with? Yeah. And I've tried to, you know, um, what do you, when you, not detonate a bomb, but when you try to, you know. Yeah, like diffuse. Defuse a bomb. Yeah, like I've yeah. been trying to look for them and defuse them. But when someone touches the hard pain, that's when you have kind of an outsized emotional reaction to something. When you're mm-hmm. reacting to something and you're like, hmm, maybe maybe I'm reacting to this more strongly than somebody else might. Maybe there's something to look at here. Yeah. So I've been looking for those little pockets. and Because as I've learned how to release them, I just get a greater sense of peace in my body. Yeah. And I feel more embodied. So... Um, because those calluses actually disconnect us from our body, right? So the sort of diffusing of them and sort of softening those outer layers and they allow dis- us yeah. and disconnect us from our body. They yeah. dis- disconnect us from people, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so I guess the second part, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, yeah. but the second part of when I finally, and I did not know that I hadn't experienced grief. I didn't know. Again, how would you know? Because nobody around you was talking about it, modeling it. I mean, I've cried rivers of tears in my life, and I've been sad. Yeah. I mean, I've been sad a ton, you know, and, but I, I didn't, I thought, oh, I must have grieved. And so. I mean, Which, by the way, like there's a past tense that is done, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so I'm going along with my life. About three years ago, I hear about breath work. And I think, oh, that's that's interesting. I want to try it. And so the breath work that I tried was an online offering, and it's by a woman named Madeline Giles. And her her style of breath work, and I'm, <laughs> I'm a little shy to admit, it's called angelic breath healing. Okay. And so I am not a religious person, but I'm a mystic. You know, I yeah. and the the thought of angels comforts me. I'm not going to argue with anybody about if it's scientifically provable. Right, I, that Doesn't, I don't care about. Irrelevant. It just feels good, yeah. and I like this woman, and so I signed up for her breathwork courses. And because they were virtual and online, I could do it alone in my home in a safe place. And it would, it's about an hour of breathing. It's a rhythmic inhale. Um, through your mouth. I mean, it's it's not complicated. Yeah. But the first, I would say, and and I learned a few other things about kind of if if your body starts kind of feeling something, and when you're in a, some sort of meditative space, just go with it. There might be wisdom there. Right. Right. So, but I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. I was just curious. So maybe the f- f- first six sessions that I did of this breath work on my own time, every few weeks. I just cried. I just, I cried that, that um, contracting, squeezing cry. Yeah. Just cr- cried where your, your, your whole chest feels like it's squeezing. Yeah. And what was so interesting, and I thought, you know, I don't know what's, I didn't know what I was crying about. Right. Because she, she would take you into a meditative state and, and my brain wasn't telling me any stories. You weren't trying to intellectualize or, yeah, have the stories narrate your emotions. You were just living into whatever was coming through you. I was breathing into my body, and my body told me, I need to grieve. Yeah. And, I, and I, it was so mysterious, and I did not understand it, because usually we have an emotion because of a thought right. or thinking. Right, right, right. 
And so what I pieced together after five or six of these sessions, I was like, what's going on? What is it? What's happening? And it, I, I got this mental image of, you know, when you look at hot asphalt mm-hmm. and you see the waves coming off the hot asphalt, it was like waves of grief were coming out of my heart center. Mm. And it was, it was this clean pain. It was this I don't know how, how else to describe it. Yeah. I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't missing anybody. I was just letting my heart radiate and squeeze out this clean pain that it need, that had, it had been carrying for 30 years. That needed to be acknowledged and held and seen in the world. There's a It didn't need to yeah. be held or seen, actually, because I was no. totally by myself, which was interesting. It, yeah. You know, I didn't need someone... I could do it by myself, which is so empowering. I guess, absolutely. Thank you. I think what I'm, I was saying about the held and seen, and maybe those those aren't the right words for this, is it needs to be like let go or you know expressed into the world. It's not about me sitting across from you, watching your tears or seeing you, but it's like it needs to be sort of held externally in the world. It needs to be released. Yeah, it needed to be released, and it, there was a, a backup. And I think that. That dream of having the cap lifted off my heart. There's there are a few other things that happened that that helped me um, activate my heart center. Roses actually really figured into my, a, a relationship I had with roses. Really helped soften my heart center truly in a in a magical way. Mm. But this breath once I had done some of that prep, the breath work gave me a safe space to be in my body. And let my body tell me what it needed to tell me. And it wasn't even information. It wasn't words. It was just allowing my body to feel. And, and like you're saying, that, that saying of the only way out is through. Yeah. Maybe you don't want to – I didn't want to necessarily go to therapy and talk about it a lot. I thought it, I had talked about it. Right, right. But my body needed to let – it needed to feel these feelings. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. And it's the thing that we fear the most of that. And, but, and yet pain is information. And information doesn't mean, by the way, words necessarily. Although in our culture, we think about like information being related to words. But information was, your body was giving you information. And in a way, your intellect and everything around you was trying to, like, squash mm-hmm. that information. Saying, nothing to see here. Yeah, We're nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah. And that experience of the breath work and allowing that pain to sort of radiate through is an acknowledgement and a way for that pain to sort of birth information into the world, you know? How did you then take that experience and move forward with it? Did you incorporate it into other aspects of your life? Were you talking with people around you about this experience? Was this a very private, quiet discovery for yourself on your grief journey? It was definitely private and quiet. I would talk to my partner about it and, you know, my closest friends. But um, I I can't remember. I mean, being able so having having this breath work and having an avenue to be more in my body, let my body have that wisdom and kind of release some of this pent up pain and and grief was 
it's such a relief. I mean, we can be it's that it, it helped with my hypervigilance a little bit. It helped mm-hmm. with my fear of talking to people a little bit because when you when you have an emotion that you haven't processed and it's like if somebody touches it, the avalanche can happen. You're really afraid to connect with people and you're really afraid to talk. Because it might open it up. Yes. And it's like, if I can't handle it, you certainly can't handle it. So how do I just, what do I do? So um, a couple years ago, my intuition, I really tap into my intuition now. And I've been meditating for years. And the last few years, my intuition has been telling me to do really scary things. Mm -hmm. And a couple years ago, my intuition told me it was time to learn how to use my voice. And I was terrified to speak up. I was terrified to show up. And I couldn't, even two years ago, I would have told you, I can't talk about the things I really care about because I'll cry. I cannot talk about what I really care about because I will cry. And so I wouldn't talk about things that I really, really cared about. And I started to get sick of having this rich inner life. <laughs> yeah, that only you knew about. Yeah. Of all these things I care deeply about, but not having the ability to talk about it or share it. And so part of starting my podcast was to learn how to use my voice. And it was mm. terrifying. I mean, kind of the last thing I would have normally done. Right, right. But I trust my intuition And I think that I am working on the ability to speak from my heart, but I needed some space in my heart center to be able to do that. And I think having that all blocked up and, and filled with grief, unresolved grief, prevented me from using my voice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's connected. It's very connected. My last guest spoke exactly about that sort of her voice chakra being sort of blocked from being not being able to express her particular grief again because it was kind of tangled up in shame and that the work she has been doing has been moving through so that she can find voice not just about expressing grief as you're saying when you stop up your voice from being able to sort of let through and move through you your grief you are also stopping all of the other expressions of of yourself of truth. Of truth. Mm-hmm. And how do we get to know ourselves if we don't? And it's not necessarily the literal using of your voice, although it often is, but it's the sort of being able to manifest that inner truth out into the world in some way. And and my my trauma made it hard for me to have relationships because I didn't wasn't modeled that wasn't modeled to me. But part of having relationships is being vulnerable and expressing yourself. Yeah. And and sharing what you're curious about and and your rich inner life with other people <laughs> at the risk of people not getting you or judging you or whatever. And then also learning who are the safe people in my life that I can and want to share my inner rich life with. Too because you hadn't learned really what that looked like either. Many of us don't learn that and we end up sharing that with the wrong person. Yeah, yeah. I, I still, I mean, I will always be self-sufficient to a fault because I had to be. Yeah. But um, I feel empowered when I can, not that I don't need other people or need help, but when I can find out things that I can do for myself and when yeah. I can help myself, I feel really empowered. And I had to practice discernment about who's safe or not. Yes. 
for sure. And that's an ongoing practice. It's a spiritual practice for me, but also just part of becoming a mature adult. But I also, um, I take responsibility for my own safety now. Yeah. So learning self-soothing, I mean, my safety up until a few years ago was to hide. Right. That was your strategy. Strategy, safety, hide, don't show up, don't tell them who you really are, just protect yourself, protect at all costs. But I wasn't connecting in the way I wanted to. So now I'm taking huge risks that feel so rattling. And so, you know, coming on this podcast is like, yes. <laughs> if you would have told me three months ago that I would have come on a podcast about talking about my grief, I would have thought, nope, <laughs> not going to, can't do that, you know. Yeah. But as I, as I teach myself to self-soothe and create safety for myself, I can take bigger risks. And as a creative person, as an artist, you have to take risks. Yeah. So my creative process has helped me. It's all, it's all intertwined. It's, it's helped you, but I imagine even doing this work has helped your creative process, that there's some – is there some – ways in which your own sort of internal rich discovery around your safety has changed or transformed your creative process? Well, it's it's helped me share a little bit more and to keep going. Yeah. I had a good I've had a good um relationship with my inspiration, but I didn't that doesn't mean you have to share it. Yeah. You yeah. can have a rich inner world in your art studio. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So, and there's sort of a safety in the anonymity of that. Yeah. Chrissy's journey into understanding how this event and the near denial of its existence in her family manifested itself in her body, her mind, her soul. Her exploration of different forms of healing has taught her a lot about herself along the way. She is listening to the wisdom she is uncovering and allowing it to guide her to take great leaps, including using her voice on this show and to create and launch her own podcast, Beyond and Back, where she interviews fellow artists and creatives about their process. I admire her dedication and her courage, and I absolutely love her show, so you should definitely check it out too. My creativity has been so important to me, and it has given me so much. I think that what's funny is that my creative process has shown me my the work I need to do on myself. Tell me more about that. I would push myself and have someone would ask me to do something, and it would it would trigger me. I would I would get emotional, or I would have a memory, and it surfaced things that were like, okay, this, and again, this is all hindsight. Yeah. It would surface something that I needed to process in order to expand a little bit more and to become a little bit more of myself. Okay. So I think that it wasn't safe for me to be, be fully embodied and be myself for so many years of my life. And we all have different ways where we're not really being authentic because we're not really t shown how to, or no. it's not important, or and it's not rewarded. No. Um, so in hindsight, 
my creative process has really been a practice and part of my spiritual practice of becoming more of myself. Because when you engage your creativity, you get to make the rules. You get to decide, I've got a vision and I'm going to make it real. So you use your, your freedom and your power. I mean, where do you, where in life do you have a safe space to make your own rules and engage your freedom and your power? It's, it's magical. Yeah. Beyond whether, I, I don't even, I couldn't care less about good or bad. I really couldn't. And In terms of art. the creative product. If, yeah. Is what I made good? Is what I made bad? Will someone like it or not? I totally understand that, and I used to worry about that. But yeah. at this point, I see so many other benefits from it that it doesn't matter if anyone else sees it or likes it. It's just having engaging that creative process has given me an opportunity and a window into getting to know myself. Yeah. And I've shown up differently in the world. And you, you, um, that plus learning to use my voice and then connecting with other creators who are involved in this kind of magical process of making stuff up yeah. and yeah. talking to them has made my life more interesting. And I, I kind of wondered when I started the podcast, I thought, well, is anyone else feeling what I'm feeling? Because all these emotions would, and, and fears would get triggered. As you were... As I was embarking on different creative projects. And m most people that I interviewed didn't. <laughs> they really? didn't necessarily relate to that. And that's okay. I'm a later-in-life artist. I'm, you know, some people just, they grow up. A few of the people I've interviewed, their parents were painters, and then they became painters. You know, it's not... It's sort of all they ever knew. Yeah. It, yeah. So, so They didn't have to maybe unlearn some of those fears around the creative process. They were just exposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it wasn't – so I thought, okay, like on the, around the ninth episode, I thought, all right, well, you're not feeling what I'm feeling. And then the tenth episode, which has been my most popular episode with Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day, mm -hmm. I, I would ask people, what does it feel like when you take a creative risk? And he's taken many risks. Yes, but he's yeah. also been in incredibly successful, I mean, in all ways. Yeah. But he described – he said, well, when I'm starting something new, it feels like you're – and I, I shouldn't even just – he was talking about um, feeling like you're almost going underwater. And the mm. way he describes it, it's really cool. You should listen to yes, it. Yes, <laughs> definitely listen to it. But as, as he was describing this to me, and I, I did almost all of my interviews in person, I'm looking at this person who I have nothing in common with professionally. Or, right. You know, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking – I know that feeling. He, I, I have felt that feeling he's describing. You saw yourself reflected in his story. Yeah. Magic. Totally. Yeah. And for him to be that vulnerable, and I guess I ask questions that people, I mean, going back to what the, maybe that's a subconscious thing of, of what the chiropractor asked me. It's like, yeah. I want to, I think questions can be keys. Yes. Oh, and absolutely. Yeah. So I want to offer that too and, and hold space and, and really listen, you know, a really deep alert listener yeah. is not that common. No, no, it's not. And the magic that happens when that listener has asked that question that maybe is a key that is unlocking something. Um, 
And I hope in my podcast series and yours as well, um, and you all should definitely check out Beyond and Back podcast, um, is one way in which we are modeling for everyone who's listening to our shows that practice of asking those questions and holding space for the listening and also helping us all recognize, and I do this myself as well in my everyday life, ways in which sometimes the way we ask questions actually, as opposed to unlocking things for people, they actually put a jail or sort of lock people in. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the ways in which we ask questions can cause harm. So how can we all be more mindful about our own agenda Mm -hmm. as we show up to be curious in the lives of someone else? Yeah. Is there anything you want to share as we wrap up the show today about how you are taking this learning, what's next for you as you explore this learning or any, any well, other just things? Talk, just going off of what you just said about keys being, sometimes being it. I mean, I'm sorry. Going off what you just said about questions, sometimes shutting someone down versus opening them up. I have learned a real, I've learned to really value discovery. Mm. And I, I, I experience it in my spirituality. I experience it in my creative process. And I experience it in my relationships. And I experience it just in the way I move in the world. If you, if you can be grounded in your body and, and open and curious. And I have faith that I can learn something from anyone or anything or any experience. Yes. I can learn from breathing differently my body, can, right. my body, which I've had my whole life and I'm never without, can teach me something decades into my life. Um, there's always something there to discover. And so trying new things, mm. taking risks, having an open mind and practicing our, our resilience and our self-soothing, those things have have served me so much. And as I've able to release a lot of this grief and some of these pent-up emotions, there's just more room for me to be more of myself. And to be curious and to be in a discovery mode as you navigate your way. Yeah. Thank you for being curious and taking a leap and to discover what this experience of being on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch would be like. I hope you feel like it was worth the um, leap I do, and I hope you do too. I wanted yeah. to read a quote that my partner sent me last night about grief. This, yes, please. This is not something he would normally send me. So interesting. It interesting. It is from Jamie Anderson. Okay. I haven't Googled Jamie Anderson yet. Grief, I've learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. All of that unspent love gathers in the corners of your eyes the lump in your throat, and in the hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. Chrissy, thank you so much for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having these conversations. I think you're doing important work, and I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thanks. There were so many important reminders for all of us traveling a grief journey on today's episode. 
including grief and the work of grief, isn't always something that happens automatically, especially if you are young and no one around you is showing you what it can look like. As a social worker, former therapist, widow, trauma survivor myself, and seeker, I was enlightened and inspired by her commitment to explore different healing practices to help her reconnect and ground down into her body after the disruption of her early trauma. Thank you so much for joining me again for another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. If you haven't already, I would love to ask you two favors. First, please subscribe to the show. And while you're online, please stop by Grief is a Sneaky Bitch page on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. I'd also love to invite you to take a moment to learn a little bit more about me and why I created this show and why I'm doing the work I am at Reimagining Grief. You can find out more about me by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com. This is Lisa Kefauver, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you for joining me. Until next time, I see you. I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.